0: Welcome to the Pro Life Team podcast. I'm here with Arnold, and we're going to talk about some of the attacks that have been thrown at at, at our population, at the African American population, at our communities by Planned Parenthood and by their founder, Margaret Singer. Arnold, I am really glad that you are here to talk about some really exciting, well, really important things for people to hear about. Would you please introduce yourself as if you were talking to a room full of pro-life leaders and pregnancy clinic executive directors?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Jacob, thanks for having me on the, uh, on the podcast. And um, it's, it's intriguing that you say pregnancy center directors because I've been working with hundreds of pregnancy centers for the last uh, 20 years. Uh, but my name is Arnold Calbraith. Um, I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, I, I serve in three capacities, essentially. One is I'm the National Director of Ministry Engagement with the Douglas Leadership Institute. Uh, I also serve on staff at uh, People's Church, which is um, a racially reconciling, generationally rich, life-giving church thriving in the heart of Cincinnati, Ohio. We have 35 nations worshiping and working there. And uh, the other third bucket is uh, I lead me and my wife's uh, um, for-profit business tree, which is called Breath of Life LLC. Uh, So uh, the best way to understand Breath of Life is it's an umbrella for the ministry gifts God has given me. So my music, I'm a professional saxophonist, the 48 years uh, playing uh, is under that bucket. Uh, architecture. I'm a degreed architect and been doing that for 36 years. That's in that, under that bucket, motivational speaking, pro-life and uh, mentoring for pastors and for individuals in general.
0: Wow. So you have, you have been gifted in, in a wide range of areas. And it sounds like you, 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 um, you probably stay up working late at night because that's a lot of things to try and stay on top of.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I jokingly say I'm a classic underachiever. But actually, I, I don't stay up late at night. Uh, I have learned uh, in my uh, as I age. I'll be sixty in December, but okay. I've learned how to uh, work when I'm supposed to work, rest when I'm supposed to rest, uh, play when I'm supposed to play. So, oh, that's uh, good. It's that, been a lifelong quest.
0: Awesome. Well, so um, so the one thing I wanted to let's go ahead and get started with the main topic that we wanted to address. So you had this video and I could probably put the video in this podcast so that we can just watch it right here.
1: My name is Reverend Arnold Culbreth and I serve as Director of Ministry Engagement with the Douglas Leadership Institute. One of our areas of focus is strengthening the family. And one of the ways we do this is by focusing on the issue of life. So in an effort to be a voice for the voiceless, defenseless, purpose-filled pre-born babies in the womb, the Douglas Leadership Institute has birthed a brand new initiative called the Jeremiah 1 and 5 Project. Did you know that since 1973, 20 million of the babies killed by abortion were black? What can we do about this as pastors and preachers? In Jeremiah 1 and 5, as this project is so aptly named, God says to Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. There are three life affirming keys that jump out at us in this text. Purview, personhood, and purpose. First, we see the purview of God. God sees and knows us in the womb. Secondly, God acknowledges personhood, even in the womb. He didn't say he saw a clump of cells. He said, I saw you, Jeremiah. So preborn lives matter. They're important to God. And thirdly, God assigns purpose in the womb. Jeremiah was set apart and appointed to be a prophet to the nations. And each of us are called to do something special in the earth too. The pastors that sign and stand with us will agree to three things, to pray, to preach, and to promote. Pray for an end to abortion and that the goals and expectations of this pivotal project are achieved. Preach that life comes from God, that is precious and that it should be protected and promote the Jeremiah 1 and 5 project by recruiting three other pastors to join us. Think about it. 250 black pastors, each promoting three other pastors. That's a thousand pastors praying, preaching, and promoting the Jeremiah 1 and 5 project. The Douglas Leadership Institute is working hard to end the abortion crisis by connecting pregnant women to free pregnancy help centers and also by networking with adoption advocates, the Fatherhood Initiative, abstinence education, abortion, aftercare, and much more. Let me leave you with this. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, the leading promoter and provider of abortion in the country, wrote a historic and infamous letter to Dr. Clarence Gamble of the Procter & Gamble Enterprise in 1939. She wrote, "'We should hire three or four colored ministers, preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro, she wrote, is through a religious appeal. We don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Since ministers were the group that the thief, the devil, John 10 and 10, strategically used to gain anti-life entry into our communities, through Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood, then I dare to believe, men and women of God, that, that God wants to use pastors, preachers, ministers of the gospel to close that same door. Will you join us? The Jeremiah 1 in 5 project needs you. Visit our website at dlinstitute.org to learn more and to sign up. Your help is desperately needed because lives depend on God bless you. Dr. Clarence J. Gamble of the the Procter & Gamble Fortune was the president of the American Eugenics Society. Okay. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was on the American Eugenics Society. Uh, And a eugenicist is somebody that believes in uh, a racial division, and racial superiority. And they mistakenly believed, uh, I say mistakenly, kindly, uh, believed that white, blonde hair, blue eyed was kind of the the premier race. People hear um, uh, Adolf Hitler in his writings talk about the Aryan race and whatnot. Well, he got a lot of that from the American Eugenics Society. Matter of fact, he came over here several times and studied under our uh, eugenic society because they were so masterful at what they were, what they were doing. Uh, so Margaret Sanger wrote a letter to Dr. Clarence J. Gamble in 1939. And in that letter, she basically says that we don't want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the, the black preacher is the man that can stifle any of those, um, Uh, you know, any of that, any of that knowledge, if it ever gets out.
0: So that statement, that statement is so evil, so powerful, so, so much that I actually want this podcast to be primarily about that single idea, Mm. because I feel like we need to, we need to make it so that it is very obvious um, as to the, I want to essentially have a lot of light Poured on that on that statement through this mm. podcast, and I want to mull it over and talk to you about your thoughts and and your reactions to hearing you know f- from your research on that idea or that those words that were written by Margaret Singer.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I I encourage people to uh, do their own research on Margaret Sanger Her name is spelled just like danger, but with an S, and uh, you know she was uh, uh, the enemy, the devil Uh, because our our, our battle isn't with other humans. Ephesians chapter six said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So the battle is really spiritual. And I say that because pro-lifers of all persuasions need to realize that Planned Parenthood isn't the enemy per se. It's the devil behind Planned Parenthood. Why am I saying that? I'm saying that because I'm a preacher of the gospel and every abortionist, every uh, abortion uh, facility worker are just as redeemable as you or I. Jesus died for them too. And when we realize that, we take a more more gospel-centric approach in our thinking about them, our praying for them, and our interactions with them. Does that make sense? That does, that does.
0: So, so when I come going back to that letter, mm-hmm. um, how does that make you feel, or what do you, what do you think, you know, what is it, how does that represent, you know, just the, what 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 are your thoughts on those words when you see that Margaret Singer wrote that to Dr. Gamble? Like, what are your thoughts? So, how do you, as you dig in on what what was really being said there?
1: Well, I have a number of thoughts and I'll just share a couple of them. Uh, It it angers me. Uh, It saddens me. Um, The Bible says in Hosea four and six that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So as one who traverses this nation like a madman, I mean, I'll be in Richmond, Virginia next week and be in Dallas a few weeks after that. I was just in Philadelphia a few weeks ago, uh, trumpeting truth on this issue. And what I've found is by and large, African-Americans do not know what you and I are talking about right now. There are those that do know and for various reasons, whether it's personal experience with abortion, whether it is uh, political allegiance uh, to the Democratic Party, uh, there are those that do know and don't want this information out. However, what I have found is that that group I just mentioned is the minority of of the minority. The majority do not know. So the tactic of the devil is to get us focusing on those folks that are dug in and they're entrenched and they're willingly uh, remaining ignorant that we miss the masses that still don't notice reality. So those are some of my thoughts. The other thoughts are, we've got to get this information out to people so that we can uh, begin to uh, diminish Planned Parenthood's unfettered access to the black community. What do I mean by that? 79% of Planned Parenthood surgical abortion facilities are in Black and brown communities. We've done the research. When I founded and was the first director of Protecting Black Life, if you go to that website, protectingblacklife.org, that research is there that shows that 79% of their abortuaries Uh, are in two mile walking distance of black and brown communities. When you talk to the average African-American about Planned Parenthood, they become angry, they become defensive. Why? Because they've been uh, either unknowingly or knowingly drinking the Planned Parenthood Kool-Aid. But when we help them understand this insidious plan that Planned Parenthood has, uh, many times their eyes and, and minds and hearts begin to open.
0: Yeah. And it seems like that plan that Planned Parenthood had back And this letter was written, I think, was 1939,
1: 19, 1939.
0: So the plan back then 1939 was to condition the African-American community. And if anyone fell out of that, out of that posture, that they would bring them back in with the the, the minister, the African-American minister. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just uh, my question my, do you think Planned parenthood is can, has continued with that that same posture towards the African American community throughout you know in today's you know in 2020 2021 are they Absolutely. currently still there and and, and it just seems like what they're conditioning So how, so how do we uncondition? how, and I think, you know, you have some of my thoughts on this, but how, what, what are your ideas on unconditioning or disturbing or shaking the tree or disrupting this conditioning of Planned Parenthood being, you know, good in some people's eyes.
1: Uh, Well, a number of things. One is, uh, back to your original question, because your question was quite multifaceted, but um, back to your original question, Uh, yes, Planned Parenthood still has that posture. Many African-American churches, and I'm talking about African-American churches, not to the exclusion of non-African-American churches, but African-American churches will often have Uh, health fairs, okay? And what you do, and I've done this many years as a pastor, I've been preaching the gospel for 36 years, is you do these things and you collaborate with your local health community. And the health community will underwrite the event to where the vendors and, and those booths don't have to pay any money. So you do blood pressure screening. They can bring the, the mobile unit that can do uh, uh, um, prostate exams for men and those kinds of things. Even though the vendors don't have to pay any money to be there, I have watched Planned Parenthood persuade African-American pastors to still receive some remuneration. And, and it's with this kind of mindset, they even use church or Christianese, you know, we know that there are a lot of expenses that you have, we know that times are tight, we want to, you know, just offset the cost and they may give them uh, 1500 to $2,000, what are they doing, they're buying their allegiance, they're buying into this um, warped friendship that we can continue to come in, and we can continue to give um, bad information, we can give low dose uh, birth control, which Planned Parenthood's birth control has been proven to be that, and uh, inferior prophylactics, because the, why? Because their goal is to get three to five abortions out of a young woman by age 24, by age 21, right? So so you get this scent, this heightened sense of protection. So you're just willy nilly having sex. And I mean, most women that go into pregnancy centers Uh, were on some kind of birth control uh, when they got pregnant, okay? So when you talk about how do we dissuade, how do we change the narrative? One of the things we do at the Douglas Leadership Institute is we do that very thing through relationship. It's quite different for someone to talk at somebody with this message. It's another thing to build relationship, trusted relationship, which is a more longer play than a one-off kind of event where you come in as a speaker, but to come in, build relationship. Now, as we talk, uh, I'm leaning into you. You know me, I know you, we've, and I'm using real examples. We've golfed together. Our families have vacationed together. You know, I don't have three heads, right? So as I'm talking to you about this information that, that assaults your sensibilities, but I can rectify, With scripture, I can corroborate with scripture, it begins to change the mindset. So let me conclude this statement with this tool. I train people to get out of the mindset of winning an argument and get into the mindset of sowing a seed. How many times has an accurate biblical godly concept been presented to you or I or anybody and years later the light bulb came on it's rare that somebody shouting at us or talking down to us got us to open up and listen so my goal is to sow seeds to do it lovingly winsomely biblically and then it's between you and God (laughs) at that point I'm gone on to the next city brother (laughs) does that make sense that, that does. That, that's how I sleep at night, uh, Jacob. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. 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 It's
0: um, yeah. Essentially, I, I think people are persuaded after. I think the key is trust. I think the key is when you trust somebody, you're willing to have them speak into your life when it mm-hmm. comes to direction. But when, it, when you don't know somebody yet and they just start to try and give you direction, it's it's uh it's usually wise to to um, to not necessarily not you know potentially to not not to take that advice quite yet because trust is is really important when it comes to being you know taking taking good advice and making good decisions well,
1: think, think, think about that Jacob one of the things I train and I'm writing this in my book one of the things I train pregnancy di- center directors, and staffs and their boards to do is build a relationship with that church don't come in with your two foot diameter and i'm being facetious two foot diameter i am pro-life button on but just come in building relationship Mm -hmm. and and if you're in an african-american church they're going to realize that you ain't african-american and they're going to want to know why you're there but if your motives are genuine and if you're not pushing an agenda down their throat, they're gonna be more likely to listen to you. That's one part of my statement. The other part of my statement, and I love having these conversations at the local, the national and the international levels that I have the privilege of doing and and challenging pro-lifers to really honestly critique our presentation. I mean, oftentimes we're harsh, we're shrill, we're holier than thou. Your message might be right, but your methods, I don't even want to listen to you. And I'm pro-life through and through. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely makes sense. I, I think in the end, relationship and trust and rapport, you know, these, these are all stepping stones toward someone, um, you know, toward essentially helping someone, you know, give speak direction into someone's life. Yeah. Um, and and so I and I feel like that's what the enemy was using in this exact scenario by mm. hiring the, the the black minister to to keep the African-American religious population in line. And so I feel like they were using that same exact tactic. In
1: and that's segment, That's why. Our, uh, the Douglas Leadership Institute's Jeremiah 1-5 project is geared toward pastors, not exclusively, but primarily geared toward pastors because we intentionally want to reverse the curse of Margaret Sanger and that letter, which we call the yeah. Negro Project. Yeah, If we and what we're finding with this Jeremiah 1 and 5 project, and I can unpack the project if you'd like here in a moment, but one of the things we're finding is that in these private pastor only zoom conversations many male and female pastors are with tears sharing their personal abortion stories for the first time so if we can't get to the pews if if the pulpit is hurting and captive so we've been speaking as one of them not i'm not talking to you as a you know And I tell a pregnancy center directors this all the time. It doesn't minimize their role. Their role is powerful. I love them. I pray for them. I'm a colleague with them. And I've done, uh, with the help of the Lord, much advancement uh, to help in in their efforts. Uh, But if a pregnancy center director is talking to a pastor, there is something in his psyche that oftentimes, and it's sad, but often dismisses what she's saying purely on the virtue of Well, you don't understand my plight. I've got all these to-dos. I've got alligators snapping. Somebody wants me to do this, that, and the other. You don't understand what I'm dealing with. So one of the things that we do, Jacob, is to help him identify what I've coined, and I'm giving away a lot of stuff in my book, but I've coined as lieutenants for life. Let's help you identify one to two seasoned, trusted, mature members of your flock that we can come alongside, put resources and information and tutelage in so that it doesn't become a major to do on that pastor's uh, plate. Then he can determine what do you want the reporting with your team to look like? How frequently do you want them to report? But now it's a ministry in your church, but you've got people that are doing it. In his brain, he shuts down because when the pregnancy center director bringing these uh, directives and action items and to do's, all of which are good. He sees them. I'm telling you as a pastor, he sees it as, oh man, here's one more thing I have to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also, you know, he's probably thinking
0: that there's people in my congregation who need, who, you know, who have went through a post, you know, who are, who are post abortive or mm-hmm. they've gone through an abortion and, and bringing up that topic, is going to affect the people in his in the room in different ways. And well, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Let's get under the hood. Let's kick the tires a little bit more. One of the things he's thinking of, and this is with this, this is with hundreds of pastors that we're talking to. I work with pastors all day, every day, right? So, so first they're thinking, well, this is a political issue. I shouldn't be touching it. Here's another thing I challenge pro-lifers locally, nationally, internationally, to stop saying. Because what they say is, well, abortion isn't a political issue. Now, think about this. If we're talking about Planned Parenthood, if you're talking about rhetoric or debate, I was trained by the late Dr. Jack Wilkie. Right, who who God used along with a handful of others to start the pro-life movement. Wonderful Catholic gentleman. He's gone on to be with the Lord now. But he trained me on if you're going to debate with the other side, then you want your arguments to be uh, to be um, uh, rock solid. Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. if you say abortion isn't uh, a political issue, then how is it that it was? voted into law by a seven to two decision by our Supreme Court in 1973. That makes it political. Now, if what you mean to say is the the overarching issue or the larger aspect is that it's a moral imperative, a biblical mandate that we defend life, then say that, but don't say it's not political. Let me say what I just said another way. You remember in school, we had the pie graphs, right? Mm-hmm. And you had yeah. different size slices connoting different things, right? Well, there, when you talk about abortion, there is a political slice, right? Otherwise we wouldn't fight so vehemently to get legislators into office that are gonna uphold life. That's political, you know? Um, but the bigger slice is is the Bible slice that life comes from God. Right, that it's sacred, that it should be protected. If that's what you mean, then say that. But stop saying it isn't political because it does have political implications.
0: Yeah, that's really good. I like that because there are several facets to it and it does touch different parts of our life. And the fact that every unborn child reflects a, you know, has a reflection of, of God. And was, met, you know, and, and God opened the womb to let mm. that, that child uh, be conceived. And, well, and so there's, yeah, God's fingerprints are on that child's beginning. And then that child has a unique way of reflecting who God is or a way
1: to reflect who God is, at least. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. If, if, if the child arrives here, if the child is conceived, God was part of that. Right, so so regardless of how crazy uh, the scenario may have been to get the child here, one night stand, even, and I don't mean to sound insensitive, but even in cases of rape, if God allows that child to 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 be to be conceived, then He's got a plan behind the purpose uh, uh, um, and destiny. Of that. Wow. And we've got to grapple with that. Is it uncomfortable truth? Absolutely, but it's still truth.
0: Going back to this, so Margaret Singer Mm -hmm. pulled in Gamble to, Mm -hmm. to, and Gamble was funding this, right? He was helping fund this idea. Can you speak to sort of like, you know, some of the the backstory on on the funding and some more of the backstory on, um, you know how how Mark you know essentially you know who was controlling Margaret Singer or who, who or who Margaret Singer was controlling to bring these these pieces together.
1: Yeah, I I don't I don't know I don't have evidence that Gamble was funding this or anything other than to say he was the president of the American Eugenics Society, which was very influential and um, presumably. You know, there's some. I'm sure there's money ties around it, and all of that. But be that as it may, what is the result of the American Eugenic Society, and what is the impact to uh, the community at large? More specifically, communities of color, and what are the, what is the carnage uh, that we see that we see today uh, might be a, a, a is an intriguing thing to consider uh, for me.
0: Yeah. And
1: so, so the, so. Let me, let me come at it this way, Jacob, which is some of what you're trying to get up. There have been some recent admissions by Planned Parenthood that they acknowledge uh, their, their, their fractured foundation. You know, and and the founding, and Margaret Sanger, and all of this, and they've done a poor job at trying to uh, acknowledge that. Because what they've done is so condescending. It's almost like, yeah, we recognize the you know the dark past of Margaret Sanger, and you know, but this is a new day, and and all of that. But when you sift through the smoke and mirrors, the new day and your model, your your business model is still abortion. I mean, they're closing down the smaller, quote unquote, mom and pop, you know, kind of, of facilities and building these mega facilities, you know, that that are mind blowing. You can go to Houston, you can go to Nashville, you can go to, you know, uh, Kissimmee, Florida, and you see these five or six story monstrosities that have ambulatory surgical care centers within them. So when there's a botched abortion, which happens more often than people realize that that young woman doesn't have to leave that facility. Where we've been getting a lot of intel and photos and video is when the botched abortion happens in a standalone facility. And then that young woman has to be rushed to the hospital. Well, Planned Parenthood is not stupid. They realize that, oh, this is a chink in our armor. Let's begin to build facilities where they don't have to leave these premises. But the other thing people need to do is, uh, and this isn't a, a, a selfless plug, but they, they really need to Google my name and the roll call. Because what we did in our roll call video, it's on it's on YouTube, is to start to highlight some of these young women that are going into the abortuaries of our land and never coming out. Not only is their baby not coming out, but they're not coming out. I mean, think about it, Jacob. Abortion is one of the most um, uh, uh, unrestricted, underregulated medical procedures that there is. You know, people talk about, well, that's a decision between a woman and her doctor. Most of the time, she doesn't even consult with the abortionist. She goes in and signs a bunch of paperwork that she may not even know what it is because she's mired in the pressure, the anxiety, the fear of I've got this new life coming and it's going to change the trajectory of my life in a way that I don't want. So she signs the stuff, she goes in under heavy anesthesia, and then this... Uh, um alleged doctor, I struggled even to, uh, you know, refer to them as doctors, comes in and does this procedure. And I've talked to several former abortionists. You had my dear friend Jeannie Bernier on recently. There are others out there. Um, The late um, uh, Noreen Johnson, who just died a month or two ago. Uh, You've got Carol Everett, who didn't perform abortions, but she ran a network of of, uh, abortuaries. And it's big money. Because you will have your own medical practice off to the side, but then you're doing this, 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 this cash money abortions. It's big business, Jacob.
0: Yeah, and and it's interesting how there's 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 this push to make it less and less medical, you know, or, yeah. or less and less. You know, like there's been these laws that have been coming out that say, you know, you you know, the abortionists must have. Um, you know, admitted rights to work in, a, you, know, you know, to be able to go to a hospital. If they don't have that, then they can't provide the abortion. You know, the, they have to have admitting rights to work in a hospital. And, and then they, essentially the opposition is trying to keep, they keep, it seems like they keep trying to make it less and less medical and more and more unrestricted.
1: Um, well, you and, know, we talked a moment ago, Jacob, about um, the political side of this. Okay, so you can have states like Georgia who arguably have more pro-life laws on the books than any other state. But that means nothing if you have judges that rubber stamp from the bench and and don't hold Planned Parenthood and other abortion uh, networks um, 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 accountable, right? I mean, we've had battles here in the state of Ohio, where I live, where the laws clearly say what you just said, that the doctor has to have, the abortionist has to have uh, admitting privileges, but the judges aren't standing behind that law. So he continues to do what he does. It's crazy. But let's, let's, if I may, and I don't want to take over the interview. Oh, no, please do. Yeah. Let's (laughs) transition this to the men and women that are most impacted by abortion. That's those that have had one or more abortions. I never wanna, and I've been trained on this from my precious post-abortive wife who had an abortion two years before we met. And uh, um, uh, so often we have this kind of discussion and there may be a young woman or a young man who can't even hardly listen to what you and I are saying, because of the condemnation, mm-hmm. because of the hurt and the pain, and uh, uh, I just want to speak to that uh, that post-abortive uh, uh, listener. And the Bible says in First John one and nine, First John chapter one, verse nine, that if we confess our sin that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you've had an abortion or maybe multiple abortions and you ask God to forgive you based on his word, he will do just that. Because in the the subconscious mind, I've drilled, not drilled, that's a little too harsh, but I've had intricate dialogue with many post-abortive men and women who who felt before they got free felt as if, because of my calculated manner in which I performed this act, I paid for it with my own money. I made a calculated decision to have this abortion. I'm not suggesting it's a light decision or they did it easily, but they feel as though I can't be forgiven for that. And nothing could be further from the truth. God will and does forgive. If, if we allow him to, and here's, here's what the devil's afraid of. Hmm. Revelation 12 and 11 says that we overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb. That's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at Calvary and the word of our testimony. So if we can get these men and women healed and whole following their abortion, then they become some of the most effective advocates for life. Let's go back to my wife. My wife worked for 32 years for the city of Cincinnati. She retired a couple years ago and now she's working part-time at a local pregnancy center, Elizabeth New Life Center, sharing her testimony, sharing the gospel and and, and ushering life into the world. So what the devil meant for evil God turns it around and uses it for good, but that's after we've embraced the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy, the healing from God. And what I love about pregnancy centers is most of them across the country do some form of free post-abortion counseling, whether it's set one, whether it is forgiven and set free, you know, there are so many uh, powerful, biblically based Uh, um, uh, curriculums out there that are helping men and women and And men who suffer and hurt from abortion. They just suffer differently than women.
0: And it it seems like that's where we should be leading is in calling people towards forgiveness and healing, um, because otherwise they'll shut out the message that we might be trying to say. Like that's, that's where people need to start when, and you know, if they've gone through a a scenario where they're part of a previous abortion, calling them towards forgiveness and healing and showing that, you know, the love of Jesus Mm -hmm. more so than trying to say, you know, here, you know, instead of going the political or the law route or the, you know, here's what's, here's what we need to do in this situation. I think, I think trying to focus on that healing and forgiveness is maybe that's the approach that's, It needs to be adopted as like the gateway or the doorway towards other topics uh,
1: at the right time. I agree. Let me back up for a minute. We were talking about some of the roadblocks that happen with pastors. And I I stopped that political. They view it as political and, and mistakenly think, okay, this isn't something me or my church needs to be involved in. Let's set that to the side. Another issue is just lack of understanding and fear. Concern the issue because he may be at the time totally unknowledgeable about the issue, right? Even though there are hurting men and women in his congregation. Planned Parenthood says one in every three women in America will have had at least one abortion by age 45. One in every three. If that's the case, they're sitting and they're silently suffering in our church views, right? But the pastor is oftentimes the, the pinch point Preventing the message to get to the flock, right? So now let's talk about the pastor himself. He may have an abortion in his past or more, maybe before he received Christ, maybe after he received Christ. So he feels condemned within his own conscience. I can't preach about this, right? Or, I he, might, had, or he
0: might also have people that he's counseling who have gone through an abortion and he knows well, the pain no. and suffering.
1: Wait, hold, let me oh, say okay. it let me say it more strong, you're onto something, but I'm gonna say it even stronger. He's had congregants that have come to him who were pregnant and either he uh, he, he allowed them to have abortion by his silence or encouraged them to have an abortion. Hmm. You see what I'm saying? So now he's condemned in his mind. Let me shift gears a little bit in a more favorable light toward the pastor because I am one of them the pastor, a congregant comes to, no, let me say it this way. He hears what you and I are saying. Maybe he sees your podcast and he says, man, this is good stuff. I want to preach this. I want to teach this. And then he goes home and his post-abortive wife, who's never been healed, says, you will not preach that. Because based on the Bible, the husband is the head of The wife, the head of the home. I didn't make that up. That's in God's word. But I've been married 36 years, and I know that the wife is sometimes the neck that turns the head. So so if she says you ain't going to preach it, you ain't going to preach it, right? So now now he's captive where he's got this truth, but he can't talk about it. So we've got battalions. I'm a United States Army uh, veteran, so I use those metaphors a lot of times. We have battalions of women who are reaching. The first ladies that's a euphemism for the pastor's wife and the ladies in the church getting to them sometimes the pastor's not the conduit for the message to come through but it is his wife once we get her healed let me give one other example and this is gonna i hope turn a light switch on for some of the pregnancy center directors of our nation they come into the xyz baptist church and they want to bring their literature they want to do a three to five minute thing on Sunday morning or whatever the case may be. And and they lead, they drop off their literature and it's crickets after that, they get no response. Well, so often the chatter around the pro-life community is well, we tried to go to the XYZ Baptist church and we couldn't get in because they're pro-abortion. That's an assumption. Let me tell you what happens, and I know this for a fact, not once, not twice, but many times across our country, is you come in and talk to the administrator, the gatekeeper, the secretary, right? She may be post-abortive, unhealed. You've given her this literature that's a trigger for her. Watch this now. And the information never even makes it to the pastor because she destroys it. So the pregnancy center can't get in, not because the pastor and his unwillingness, although that happens sometimes, but in this example, I'm talking about it never even makes its way to the pastor because you got that unhealed uh, post-abortive um, uh, secretary at the door that you interface with. Does that make sense? And that yeah. is so prolific across the church that it's, uh, that it's, it's, it's profound.
0: And I think that speaks to what people who are called out of who have been healed from their post-abortion past and they have been now empowered to help others avoid or to find healing as well and to also avoid the pain of abortion. And so I think people who have gone through this have a special voice in order to help, you know the secretary who's also post-abortive and who hasn't found healing, to invite, you know, by by leading with healing and mm. and recovery and forgiveness and grace, um, I feel like wow. there's there's something that feels like that's the that's the way to um, to reach some of these harder, you know, these people who have barriers up or who are are very, um, you know, they're damaged, they're hurt, they mm. they need they need repair and help. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I, you are definitely onto something, Jacob. You really are. I mean, we can't we can't pound them with the truth, you know, the animation and the flailing arms and the raised voices. If I can use bad grammar on purpose to make a point, ain't nobody trying to hear that. Right? But you know, and, and I've trained people over the years that have worked with me, calm, loving, level-headed, biblically based, st- uh, statistically corroborated conversation coupled with the Holy Spirit wins the day every time hollering at somebody is never going to move the ball down the field
0: ever yeah yeah um and I there, there's a, there's this are you familiar with um the uh, the Celtic way of evangelism have you heard about Saint Patrick or the story of Patrick in Ireland have you heard about that
1: before say some more about it sure sure so
0: Patrick was kidnapped And as a young boy and he was brought to Ireland and the Irish people were very, very violent to say the least. And, and, and so, and he was, you know, a slave there in Ireland and God told, you know, years later God tells them to go towards the coast and he would find a way to escape. And he did. And so he escapes, but then years later, he comes back as a missionary to the Irish people and he come and, they, and the Irish people know that Patrick was the slave boy who escaped, and here he is coming back to share Jesus with this group. Meanwhile, the Catholic Church had marked the Irish people as unreachable because they didn't re- re- respond the way, you know, they didn't respond to the, um, the Catholic Church's approach to evangelism, mm-hmm. and they essentially... And so the Catholic Church said these, these people are barbaric, they're unreachable, but that but Patrick goes to this group and they essentially they listened to Patrick because he came back as a previous slave, mm-hmm. ministering to the people that he had spent time with as a slave, and loving on these people, uh, and essentially they listened to him because they knew that he came back, even at the risk of you know being hurt because he you know it, all that to say is. He, you know, he he was a slave. He he escaped and he comes back and then he saves the people who were barbaric and put him under slavery in the first place. And it just simply sort of represents, you know, an idea of how to reach people. Sometimes we have to, you know, put ourselves out there at risk and, and invite. I don't know. It's just there's a lot to draw from that story. But essentially, what I feel like is that. You know, the, the post of, the abortive women coming and inviting other post-abortive women to find healing and inviting people to avoid abortion. And it's it's a very difficult journey to, to say um, that I'm that I had an abortion and that I'm looking, you know, that I found healing. You know, essentially trying to say that publicly is difficult, but it also is also healing and it provides, you know, invites a pathway for other people to find healing. And it's a very difficult journey, but it's it's one that's worth worth traveling, and then it brings light into these dark spaces um, mm. in the past of a person, I believe.
1: Yeah, let me give a let me give a a, a modern day um, correlation to the story you just gave uh, about uh, Saint Patrick. Uh, I was um, endeavoring to reach the NAACP, the National. Uh, Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Most people are aware of that that large, historic, um, significantly liberal uh, organization. And I was trying to, um, here in Cincinnati, the Cincinnati uh, chapter, I was trying to prevail upon them about the life issue uh, as an outsider. Mm-hmm. I was not a member of the NAACP, but I would attend the meetings in attempts of trying to uh, uh, carry this, this message. And I wasn't getting anywhere. So I was lamenting to my dear friend, uh, Dr. Alveda King, uh, who is one of the, uh, seven co-founders of the National Black Pro-Life Coalition. I am one of the seven as well. Uh, but she said she's a lifetime NAACP member as the, you know, as part of the King legacy, the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King. She said, well, Arnold, she said, what you're doing is like being outside of the camp lobbing rocks over the wall. She said, you got to become a member and get on the inside. And I fought it for a while because I didn't want to become a member, uh, but 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 the Holy Spirit moved on my heart. Again, there's the power of that winsome, loving, relational interaction that God then waters that seed in the heart of an individual on any given topic. So I became a member of the NAACP, built a wonderful friendship with the then president of the NAACP, who is now uh, our vice mayor uh, here in Cincinnati, Ohio, Christopher Smitherman, who is a dear friend of mine. Uh, The end result was having pro-life presentation full blown three or four times in the two or three years I was a member of the NAACP. Uh, uh, We debated, um, myself and a panel uh, of of colleagues, debated Planned Parenthood of Southwest, Southwest Ohio uh, in an NAACP meeting. And it wasn't me who had to defend or give a lot of commentary during the Q&A. It was the audience who we had educated over the course of several years that were firing into them. And, and the young woman did such a poor job of defending their quote unquote brand that Planned Parenthood fired her the next day, right? So so um, So a friend of mine said, Uh, And she almost said it in a condescending kind of way. That's how it felt to me, almost like I was a little kid getting patted on the head. She said, well, Arnold, that's some good work that you're doing with the NAACP. You continue to do that if you think it's a redeemable organization. Mm -hmm. And the response the Holy Spirit gave me in that moment was, I could care less whether it's a redeemable organization. What my focus is, is it's an organization comprised of redeemable people. Oh, that's good. You see what i'm saying so so when we do this work even like planned parenthood and the work that my dear friend abby johnson has done with and then there were none you know ministering to former abortionists and former abortion facility workers um um uh to 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 provide help and hope and healing to them because they're redeemable right it's 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 a similar kind of a concept but that is an example similar to saint patrick you know, of going into uh, a bastion of liberalism. And I would sit through meetings and I'm listening to various things that they're voting on and discussing, some of which I vehemently uh, disagreed with, and other things I agreed with. One of the things that was also key in my example, and I'm only saying this to lift up the Lord, but but one of the things that was key was that I'm a lifelong Cincinnatian. Other than my United States Army experience and my architectural training, I've been right here in Cincinnati. So they've known my family. My father was a pastor before me. They've known my ministry. So it's like, okay, we don't understand all this abortion stuff he's talking about, but but we like him. We like his character. So they were willing to listen, going back to what, what we said earlier. So let me put all that in a scriptural context. The Bible says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. So yeah, I'm putting myself out there. We put ourselves out there so that they can see our light, our good work, but ultimately so that they glorify the father. We got to draw them back to him. It's not about me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Hmm. That's, that's, that's really good. It reminds me of a story um I was once uh I was on this uh prairie retreat over a weekend and I was off in the desert area writing in my journal trying to hear God's voice talking and writing and not writing down what I was thinking and then writing down what I heard God's voice say and one of the things I was writing down was you know it sure is beautiful out here God I can hear you know the in nature I can hear the crickets and the and the you know the birds but then I can hear this traffic off in the distance god and I, I know that sounds you know marking it as sort of like an ugly noise. And I hear like I heard God's voice say that each one of those cars are full of people that I love. Mm. <laughs> so,
1: Come on, so, man.
0: Yeah. That's
1: good. <laughs> that that we we say among the preachers, that'll preach, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that make me that made me think of I, I get goosebumps right now mm. thinking about this organization that, you know, whether it's redeemable or not. You know that's sort of like traffic noise. Traffic noise, in my mind, is one of the worst noises you can have. You know, imagine like it's just simply not attractive, right? Hmm. But but God turned it around, saying each one of those cars has people in it that I love. Each one of those organizations that are you know marked with you know a variety of decisions, you know, and, and we'll so check, check yeah, this out. Let it's let full of people hand. that God loves. Like that's yeah, that was right. what you were. That's what you found too. God Absolutely. Said, there's let me
1: add to that. Let me add to that analogy. <laughs> I love that analogy, Jacob. Let me add to it. I've got friends from New York and they travel and go other places and they can't sleep because they're accustomed <laughs> to hearing traffic and ambulances <laughs> and police cars. What am I saying? What I'm saying is sometimes people are so accustomed to chaos and yeah. up people and pain that to hear anything other is, is, is so counter to their mind. Whereas you and I we've 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 met christ we've met christ you know through the power of the holy spirit and the word of god so yeah. we understand peace so that that's powerful man yeah it is and and,
0: and identifying an organization um that you don't want to be a part of or you don't know if it's going to turn around or not like identifying that that's not the case it's full of people that god mm-hmm. loves and that are redeemable yeah. that's it's a whole different lens to see that that group through and that's really
1: cool that's really mm-hmm. beautiful now, um, so, so, when we talk about our Jeremiah 1 and 5 project, yes, talk about that. Please. For a bit. We took Jeremiah 1 and 5, and I happen to be reading from the New Living Translation. It, it's worded this way This is God talking to Jeremiah. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. So I took that verse, I prayed, I fasted, I sought the Lord for illumination concerning that verse. And what he gave me were these peas. You know, I'm a preacher, so a lot of times uh, alliteration is, is what bubbles up. But I saw the purview of God in that verse. He sees all, he knows all. He saw us even from our mother's womb before we were born, so purview. Second thing we see is personhood god acknowledges jeremiah in that verse as a person he didn't say he saw a clump of cells he saw jeremiah right and and when we think about clumps of cells in in a in a a pro-abortion argument because that comes from the other side we're biologically speaking we're all clumps of cells some of us are just bigger clumps than (laughs) than others but we're (laughs) we're, we're really just an amalgamation of cells right so we see purview we see personhood, and then we see purpose because he, he called Jeremiah, he said, he, he said, I appointed you as my prophet to the nations. So he had purpose even from the womb, and all of us do too. Now, what that purpose is, we have to sort and sift that out as we live and grow and become more knowledgeable about God and self. And we got to stop doing this hierarchical comparison, you know, if a person's a preacher or if they're a doctor or if they're a janitor or if they're a crossing guard, if they're serving God and leaning into life and the lives of people with him, with his truth bubbling out of them, it's it's of equal significance in the economy of the kingdom. So what are we asking pastors to do? We're asking them to pray, pray for yeah. an end to abortion. Right? And I I speak in front of a lot of audiences, banquets, conferences, seminars, college campuses, and I ask from time to time for a show of hands, and I offer this to whoever's listening to the podcast, <laughs> a show of hands of who prayed today for an end to abortion. I didn't ask, do you want to see abortion ended? I didn't say, do you feel that abortion's wrong? I said, did you pray today for an ending of abortion? And most people can't raise their hands. Do they ever pray? Yeah, I'm sure they do. But the question was, did you pray today? Why am I saying that? I'm saying that because prayer is one of the most underutilized weapons of our warfare as Christians. We do not pray enough, right? The great E.M. Bounds who wrote, more volumes on prayer than any theologian i know he said this he said the greatest travesty regarding prayer is not unanswered prayer but unoffered prayer prayers that you didn't even lift to god so we're asking for uh praying for an end to abortion second thing we ask the preachers to do pastors to do is to preach that life comes from god and that it's sacred and it should be protected now Some pastors, and and I I train pregnancy center directors about this all the time, don't fall out of your chair when the pastor says he's not ready to preach a full-fledged pro-life sermon. Let's start him with baby steps. They say, well, what baby steps? Well, when you preach the gospel and you give an altar appeal at the end, you list things that God can forgive people from, right? If you're a liar, if you're a gambler, if you're this, if you're that, simply add Mm. to that list. If you've had an abortion, God can forgive you. I've talked to so many men and women, Jacob, that God used that simple but powerful statement as the catalyst to start them toward their healing. So pray, preach, and then promote. And we ask them to promote our Jeremiah 1 and 5 project from a pastor-to-pastor perspective. Over a cup of coffee... Sitting across a table in a coffee shop, we're friends, we golf together, we fish together. You know me, but we're talking about this controversial topic, and yeah. that's very different than somebody hollering at them.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really good. <laughs> um, yeah, and I would just add one more step, I guess, right, right after the word prayer, I guess, peacefully uh, wait or you know, essentially having five minutes of not talking and and seeking God's voice and direction. Um, I feel like that's one of the ingredients of prayer I recently learned a few years ago as part of hearing God's voice. And I feel like that's really important after praying something or, you know, talking to God to, to have that peaceful, quiet time to try and give, you know, to, essentially to try and Stop talking in my head and primarily yeah. to uh, to then give space for for God's voice to resonate and to um, to be heard.
1: That, but, that's yeah. good. I, I I appreciate that. And, and I can I affirm uh, that um, if you're going to pray concerning uh, who it is God would have you to speak to. I'm talking to pastors now. What pastor God would have you to speak to about this truth. You're going to have to get quiet. And you're going to have to listen to his voice yeah. as to the who, because he knows who's ready and who may be receptive, you know, and he'll he'll lead and, his, and he'll guide. And and that's a good point you raised. When we talk about prayer, most of our prayer in Western culture is talking. Mm-hmm. But if God is uh, omnipotent, not omnipotent, that means all powerful. If he's omniscient, Yes, he knows all things. Then why am I taking all the prayer time talking to him? I need to shut up and listen to him. Well, Maybe that's it, why he gave yeah. us two ears and one mouth. <laughs> it's more, its
0: a—it's a good dialogue. Like you know, part of relationship with anybody is talking back and forth, and and so you know you know, he says, I heard, I say, he, you know, essentially, I think there's that back and forth that is really important. And very often, I feel like I I was raised in a prayer life where I would talk to God, but I wasn't there to receive, you know, I wasn't there, I, I, you know, I would just keep talking. (laughs) I was one of those friends that would never shut up. (laughs) I would just keep talking and talking. and, And you
1: know, what's powerful, Jacob is, I really think God will take this part of the segment and really yeah. prick people's hearts because if we're honest with ourselves, most of us do that. Who wants to interface with a friend that you can never get a word in? Exactly.
0: Yeah. I, my, my wife's on the phone sometimes with a friend who talks for like an hour. And I and I know who it is because my
1: wife doesn't say anything. <laughs> She's just there you, listening. You, you, can <laughs> the room, you can set the phone down in another room and go <laughs> wash the dishes and they don't even know you're gone. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes yep. that friend we're describing is us yes exactly and that's yeah. that was
0: my prayer life for many you know, for a long time that was right. how i knew to pray and so i think that's an important lesson that i learned and i would like other people to have that experience if they haven't had it yet that's something that's worth pursuing and finding yeah um,
1: so i think you have i think you have uh content for for a couple of segments quite frankly well and hopefully someone
0: enjoys yeah, doing the treadmill or the dishes while listening to this, this longer piece. But uh, before we wrap things up, I want to ask. So you mentioned in that letter back, you know, Margaret Sanger's letter, she mm-hmm. was asking for funding to pay for ministers to mm-hmm. influence the African-American community back then. I think she also in that same letter, she said she marked the opposition back then as her enemy. And so that was interesting that she used the word enemy back in 1939. But going back to that money piece, you mentioned that Planned Parenthood had given like $1,500 to a pastor or a church Mm -hmm. potentially buy an influence. Mm -hmm. That's a lot cheaper than having someone on staff. Mm. And so I'm wondering today, and I don't don't think you have the answer to this, but I'm posing the question of, I'm wondering today, what financial... um, sowing is Planned Parenthood doing in churches today. Um, but they definitely have a lot of allegiance, just generally speaking, from different people um, who have, the, you know, essentially Planned Parenthood, you know, the allegiance of Planned Parenthood, in spite of what they do, seems to be quite strong. And, and so there's a lot of work, there's a lot of change that needs to be taken, that needs to take place for that to for the ship to turn around or for things to change. But at the same time, I think yeah, I think it starts with prayer. It starts. And then I think that listening piece will give people confidence when they hear God's voice, tell them to do something or speak to something. I think the confidence will be there beyond anyone's ability to shake them, hmm. the confidence of what they should do. And so I think there's a lot there, um, but I'm wondering like, what is, yeah, is Planned Parenthood still sowing? And I think the answer is probably yes, but I don't know the answer to that.
1: Um, well, they're definitely they're definitely still sewing and and going back to the statements we made earlier about uh, abortion isn't political. Planned Parenthood is unapologetic, uh, arrogantly so with mm-hmm. who they are, what they're about, no apologies. They have arguably one of the most um, deeply funded, aggressive. Lobby bases of any facet of the political spectrum. Hmm. I mean, they're, they're lobbyists and their uh, reach, you know, persuading and quote unquote buying politicians is off the chart. So while we're sitting back talking about, well, it's not political, they're moving the ball down the field consistently because they understand the power of politics. I love the fact that in the pro-life movement we have battalions that their focus is on politics. Okay, yeah. let me just give a let me give an analogy of how God has shown me uh, a perspective on what He's called me to do in the pro-life movement. Uh, I tell pregnancy center directors this all the time. It's a lot like they are the infantry on the battlefield in the foxhole. Okay. So mortar fire is going overhead. You're firing at maybe an enemy you can't see. And in the foxhole next to you, uh, a soldier is, is dead, you know, cause he's, he's, he or she has been shot. So it's like, you don't know whether you're winning or not. You're despondent. You're overwhelmed. Mm. You're fearful. And one of the things, God, I feel the Holy spirit right now. One of the things I feel like God has called me to do is to be the air force. And what what I do is national and international so I can see the whole battlefield. And it's like we're winning. The enemy is running. Don't stop engaging. The other thing I try to do with the help of the Holy Spirit is to challenge pro-lifers. I'm in meetings with national heads of national pro-life organizations, closed door meetings, and they're bickering back and forth like little kids. What are they bickering about? They're bickering about because uh, our, our niche is is adoption and if you're not doing adoption then you're missing the boat and this other organization well we're sidewalk counselors if you're not out on the sidewalk then you don't get it you know and this other organization is saying it's like and and i every time i've gone to those meetings i get to the point where i've had it up to here and i stand up and i passionately strongly unapologetically and diplomatically challenge all of them because if we're a football team and all of us are quarterbacks, we gonna lose the game. We need somebody catching the ball. We need somebody blocking. We need somebody uh, uh, putting the stripes on the field. We need somebody cheering with pom poms. We need somebody in the doggone uh, uh, concession stand making hot dogs. Everybody's (laughs) got work to do. And when we do it together, particularly across color lines with the racist tentacles of abortion in the Black and Hispanic communities, mm. we can, we have the opportunity to simultaneously uh, uh, do damage to the principalities of abortion and racism at the same time.
0: Yeah, that's really good. I I, I appreciate that, th- those thoughts. Mm.
1: Um,
0: I want to back up one step and ask, so when you were saying lobbyists, mm-hmm. I it, it, it spurred me to think. So, so Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry hasn't just sent lobbyists, maybe to the in the political sphere. I sort of feel like when they sent that minister to the Afri- African American, you know, Af- using the African American pastor to to essentially seed. Well, essentially, it's almost like they brought a lobbyist to a group. Like they, they essentially bought like a lobbyist to try and negatively influence a group using their their weakness which was love of god it it just feels so evil like it's I, i i i have a hard time understanding like how they can take something so you know something so beautiful as a pastor but then to essentially warp a pastor into being something that's not a pastor of the gospel but a pastor of you know based on their agenda and it right. just I, I feel like they have it, it, you know I'm you know that it feels like that you know they've gone too far by trying to leverage a religious pastor by to to <laughs> weave their mission their message in such a way that like I feel like that should have been hand you know out of bounds
1: or uh, because it's just like well I mean think about it Jacob if uh, if your if, if your business model if if your source of revenue is killing babies, I mean, what what what's yeah. beyond what's beyond? Well, I, I hear what you're saying, but what's beyond reason? Let's shift gears off of the yeah. past for a moment, and I'm not taking anything away from what you just said. Let's let that stand and let that simmer, right? But let me shift gears. When we think, when I think about some of the intentional, s- tactical, strategic methodology that Planned Parenthood uses. They'll get young women who are all into you know my body my choice, who are all particularly right now, I'm specifically talking about young African American militant young women, okay right And they pump them with their talking points and and when we did when we debated Planned Parenthood at the NAACP meeting in Cincinnati, Ohio is what is a young white woman. Who was over Planned Parenthood of Southwest Ohio at the time, and she had three young black girls with her, all of whom had been uh, drinking the proverbial Planned Parenthood Kool Aid and were spouting off the points. And the those those um, older, I call them church mothers in the audience that we had educated over the course of a couple of years, they would just they know how to how to tighten you up politely, you know, because they'll say, "Now, baby." let me explain something to you and then they just shut you down with love you know it was it was amazing to watch but when we did the um the regional black family reunion which is a big festival that happens in our city every year. And there's music there, some local acts, some uh, uh, national acts, uh, there are vendors there, there's clothing, there's perfumes, there's ice cream, there's funnel cakes, all of that. And that happens every year around the country, but we do it here in Cincinnati. And, and down through the years, uh, I've had a booth there Uh, a truth booth, if you will, sharing information with people, putting resources in their hands, and, and one year I brought in uh, Alvita King, Catherine Davis, Dean Nelson, Ryan Baumberger. These are all my friends. And we brought them in to do an episode of our a pro-life television show. Uh, at the time, I was working at Life Issues Institute with Dr. Jack Wilkie and Brad Mattis. And this, this pro-life show, Facing Life Head On, I brought them in to film an episode at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. And then after we filmed, we went over to the Black Family Reunion. And these pro-life giants that I just told you about, who were my close personal friends, worked the booth for a while. So, so, so Alvita, and, and all of them will love that I told this story. Alvita said, we need to go down and visit the Planned Parenthood booth. And I'm, you know, I'm radical. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had volunteers there that were working the booth, and we went down to and and again, it's the here's my point: it's these young African American militant. They're educated, they're articulate, they're just misguided. Who are working in this booth, and 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 Alveda and Catherine and 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 Ryan particularly just commenced to lovingly, diplomatically shut them down, bro. I mean, I mean, as far as debate and as far as conversation and offering them some truth and offering, and it's interesting to watch the dynamics because one of them, or maybe two of them will be strong and will almost like be the leader. Mm -hmm. And the other ones that are there are really kind of going along almost like sheep because this, because the, because the leader is the most vocal, but, but you're, they're starting to listen. They're starting to ask questions. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's amazing to watch, but I'm just saying that to say when we talk about lobbying as a concept, not so much literally, even though what I meant originally was Planned Parenthood literally has lobbyists uh, on Capitol Hill and at, in our state houses, uh, working uh, the legislators of our state houses as well. But you you defined pastors as a type of lobbyist but now i'm adding to that mix those young militant uh yeah that it's powerful man and that might be their
0: modern day lobbyists is essentially
1: hire younger people of influence that's exactly what it is and one of the things i've been telling folks uh, uh in my camp uh, frequently is that we've got to get to the historically black colleges and universities and educate these young people because, uh, millennials are particularly millennials of color are more often than not very justice oriented, you know, and if we don't give them some, some, some biblical accurate grounding, they're going to spin off seeking justice concerning whatever the matter may be. And what we're finding is they're pushing for an a justice agenda that's different than what you and I are saying, because their mindset is the rights of the woman. When, 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 when Roe versus Wade came into play and abortion became legalized, Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry then pivoted and begin reaching out to the Black community because the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King and others were starting to die off, and they attached themselves to the civil rights movement. Alvita King will tell you this story mm-hmm. from the perspective of these are your rights. You don't want anybody taking away your rights. This is your body. And you and I know that okay, yeah, you got some rights, but but doesn't that pre-born baby, according to the Constitution, again, I'm talking politics, have unalienable rights, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness? The other thing is when you talk about, uh, and I'm not a pro-life apologist. I have many friends who are. I just know the scriptures and I know logic. It's, we're not even talking about your body. I mean, you know, the baby inside has his or her own DNA, yeah. Often, oftentimes they're a different gender than you are growing on the inside. So when you say my body, my choice, I'm not arguing about your body. I'm arguing about the body that's growing inside of your body. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. But most, most times people, um, come to the conclusion that because I, or others, are saying what I've been, we've been saying in the course of this podcast, that we are unfeeling, we are insensitive. That's not what we're talking about. Yeah. My wife and so many others will tell you that you might go and have this abortion that you think is the solution to your problem, and it will haunt you and hunt you down for decades. Jacob, I had a woman in my church, one of the churches, I've had the privilege of being a lead pastor in several churches, and one of the churches that, that I pastored, I had this woman who I was trying to get her to fit into a ministry role, right? And I tried her in the choir because she had a good singing voice and she just kind of wreaked havoc in the choir. Then I moved her over into another ministry area and she wreaked havoc over there. And she was such a lovable sister. She was just broken, if you will. So, so, so I had the presence of mind of appreciating and utilizing licensed professional counseling beyond my capabilities. Most pastors are not licensed professional counselors. They teach us some counseling uh, uh, tools and tactics in seminary, but not like a licensed professional counselor. So I encouraged her over the course of a month ago. At first, she didn't want to go. She started avoiding me. She didn't want to talk. And then she finally said, okay, pastor, because she loved me and trusted me. You talked about this earlier. She said, I'll go. And this particular Christian licensed professional counselor, after about three sessions, was able to unlock for her the not one, not two, but four five abortions she had had Mm. that she had stuffed down so far that she didn't even attach that to not being able to keep a job, not being able to maintain a marriage, running through relationships, bad decisions. But you got all of this volatility and brokenness that you've stuffed down. So when I work booths at various events, and a young person or maybe a not so young person comes up to me at the booth and they've had an abortion, most of the time you don't have to say anything because they're doing all the talking and they're trying to convince you that what they did was the best thing for them and it helped me in mm. this way or that way. And they just keep talking and it starts to get more and more sad and more and more bitter. And before you know it, they're, they're in a puddle of tears and you haven't said anything why because their conscience is condemning them they need the love and the grace and the mercy of god to break out of that yeah
0: yeah that's really well i really appreciate your time and you speaking on this you know these dark difficult Mm -hmm. topics and i i'm really excited to share this with people that to hear this story these stories and this this insight um and, and I think, yeah, I and mean, I pray that God will um, speak to people and that people will yeah, listen to for his voice and his direction
1: so they can know what he's calling them to do. Amen. And if I go back to the example I gave of my wife and I shared a story about my wife uh, because I have permission to do so. And oftentimes my wife is with me. Uh, I started her out in small settings, sharing her testimony. She hated it. She was terrified. And then I started pulling her onto even national uh, platforms. And she would share. We've done the Heartbeat International Conference with thousands of pregnancy centers from across the nation. And she gave her testimony. And now God is using her, to your point, in a pregnancy center on a daily basis, sharing her testimony. But here's what I really want to say. When I shared the statement about her having an abortion two years before we met, that wasn't with me. I've never been involved in an abortion. This was with some other young man who I've never met. I came alongside of her in relationship and you know, um, and was able to walk alongside her, you know to, to get to this point. I don't take the credit. I give God the credit. But we had never even heard of post-abortion counseling. you know, for years, she's just studying the Word of God, wrestling with her own guilt. Uh, she'd pray for forgiveness and believe she received forgiveness. And then she'd spiral back into depression and things like that because she, you know, but once I worked at Life Issues Institute and I learned about post-abortion healing, she was able to go through Forgiven and Set Free and it changed the game. Yeah, powerful stuff. That is
0: powerful. That And that's, and it's, and it's beautiful to see how, I mean, God calls all of us from uh, from death to life, or from mm. broken pots to pots that can hold something, or from, you know, from ashes to beauty, from you know, and from you know, from post-abortion to healed or from to restored. And I think I think that's the common story of God's calling is that we're being called from, yeah, from death. You know, essentially, without Jesus, we're all dead, and then Jesus right. is the He's the conqueror of death, and He can breathe life into us, making it up so that we have eternal life, which mm. is just so good. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: it is. Yes, it is. I love that. And I'll tell you, uh, uh, as we're wrapping up, um, for those that might be listening, um, you know, uh, my dear friend, Father Frank Pavone, who is the founder of uh, Priest for Life, uh, he says, that you don't choose the pro-life movement, it chooses you. You know, so, so all of us have stories as to how we got into this work. I don't know many people that wake up in the morning and say, I want to deal with the volatility and pushback or revolving, involving abortion. I don't know anybody that does that, but yeah. he thrusts us into this work. And you might be listening to this podcast right now, but God is stirring your heart while you're listening. And I just wanna let you know, you don't have to have a title, you don't have to have a business card. You don't have to have a ministry. You just have to have a heart, and and respond obediently to the Spirit of God, and He'll blow your mind with the opportunities, the influence, and the impact of Him using your life to touch others.
0: Oh, that's good. I think we'll end right there. I think that I think that's it. <laughs> that's, the,
1: that's the mic drop, huh? <laughs> I
0: well, I, because I think you know. Because honestly, like that's. It, you know, if when God calls you to something, that's what you should do. It's not based on what you decide you should do. It's based mm-hmm. on God's calling. And mm-hmm. when God calls you, you can have confidence that that's where you need to invest your time,
1: resources, and and efforts into answering that call. Mm. that's that's so powerful jacob and 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 i like the way uh bill bright the late bill bright you know the the founder of uh, campus crusade for Christ says, is find the thing that god is doing and do that because that's already blessed so when you look <laughs> at this pro-life work you know what i do i just kind of stepped into this stream and then the current carried me because this is this is an area that's majorly on the heart of god if he's the mm. creator uh, a giver of life, then we've got to be involved, defending and promoting life. And, and, and I love, yeah. I love going back and talking to young people uh, and not so young people. I just had a, a mentoring session with a young man yesterday about the relationship that he's in. You know, and if I can just be raw for a minute, yeah, uh, he is. You know, he's in this relationship with this young woman and he's made his, de- his determination that he's not going to have intercourse until he gets married, right? But he's doing everything else, you know, that quantifies as sex. So, So we've got to talk to young people pre-abortion. Yeah. And equip them. People say, well, you know, abstinence education doesn't work. No, abstinence education works. I mean, if you're not having sex, the chances are pretty good that you won't get pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's not, the, it's not the abstinence education that doesn't work. You ain't working the abstinence education. That, that's the you right know. way to say it. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so we've got to have these conversations with young people. We have to help them, uh, young men understand. It doesn't make you cool. It doesn't make you a man because you got all these sexual conquests under your belt. It makes you a fool. You know what I'm saying? So so I love having conversations in a room full of men. And we're talking about everything you and I just talked about. Because think about it. The woman is the carrier of the egg. The man is the carrier of the seed. So if we can get men to stop slinging seed all over town, right? Yep. Four, five, six, ten 10 baby mamas, we can shut the abortion industry down. Yeah. And that's I, another I, podcast, brother. Yeah, I think <laughs> to summarize what this podcast is
0: doing is mm. I feel like we're encouraging pastors and for people of you know young 20, 20 year old, 30-year-old influencers along with pastors to essentially counter the mm. not just the, the ministers that Planned Parenthood hired back in 1939, but also to essentially counter the lobbyists, the pastors, the ministers, the lobbyists, the young influencers. We need pro-life young people, um, pro-life, you know, essentially Jesus-loving ministers to mm. counter that message and to, to essentially, and then leveraging that doorway of abortion restoration and abortion healing and listing that off as one of the sins that God's calling us to find healing from yes. as, and weaving that in. Um, so that it becomes, it has more light sh- shown on it, and, and helping people tell those tell the stories of their healing, and helping mm-hmm. people find healing, and helping them t- tell those stories is shining light in these dark spaces in our past that will then not be so dark because they've got Jesus's light restoring that part of our of our lives.
1: That, um, that's powerful you say that Jacob, because when you think about the power of testimony. Right. I, again, I'm a quote, uh, Revelation 12 and 11. We overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb. We're talking about the shed blood of Jesus, the lamb of God and the word of our testimony. So when my wife first started sharing her testimony years ago, she was terrified. She hated it. She didn't push back or fight me as a result of it. But there were times when I would go places and she would say, "Oh, don't make me say anything today. And And I would I want to respect that. I want to move at the pace that you're comfortable with. But over the years of doing that consistently, she's become more confident. She's become more centered. She's become more convinced of the love and the grace and mercy of God. And she's become more determined to share her testimony with other people. So there are men and women that are listening to this podcast right now who have had multiple abortions, and they're like, man, a." I want to get healed from this. And B, I'd love to be able to share this with my friends and and colleagues. Um, So I I pray that God uses this podcast to catapult them into this incredible uh, area of opportunity in their lives. All of us already have spheres of influence. Maybe your influence is local. Maybe somebody's influence is national. Maybe somebody's influence is international. That's not important. What's important is are you using that avenue that sphere of influence for good and for god that's the yeah. key
0: everyone's got their circle you know yes. the people that they they talk to and that and that they have a voice in those people's lives and we just want more people to well to be at a point where they can share their yeah. story and for it to be heard and for it to have a positive influence on those people in their circle
1: yeah yeah and and you know i know we still keep, we keep saying we keep saying we're stopping and we keep going. Yeah. When, when when men have these kind of conversations with men, I'm talking about older men having it with younger men. Uh, um, it is so powerful because the lies that we're told in the locker room and on the bus and through the media that you're less than a man. If you're not one colloquialism mm. is hit, you know, guys will be dating a young girl and the, and the fellas I have, man, you hit that yet? Man, come on man, you better hit your knees and pray. You talking about hitting that. You know what I'm saying? Don't, don't you respect her enough? That's somebody's daughter. You know what I'm saying? That that's eventually going to be somebody's mother and you're talking about hitting that. You know, that doesn't make you a man, you know, and 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 we've got to get to a place where we have those kinds of uncomfortable, candid but necessary conversations one one with another. You oh, know? that's really good. Yeah, I'm trying with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm trying to make virginity cool again, Jacob, because that's God's best. That's what the Bible talks about. I was talking to this woman one time that was at a conference. Sad to say it was a church conference. Again, we're talking about Planned Parenthood wiggling into the church. This is a church conference. And before you go into the breakout sessions, there's a huge fishbowl with condoms in it. And, and some of the women are going into the session, grabbing in the bowl, putting condoms in their purse, and they're going in. So I'm watching this. And I'm, 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 I'm moved to tears, literally. And this one woman comes out. I didn't want to talk to just anybody and everybody. I'm like, God, show me the right person to talk to. So I'm talking to this woman. And I said, ma'am, I saw you take some of the condoms. I said, can you talk to me about that? She said, oh, yeah, I got I got two young sons, you know, and, and they're in their teens. And they're starting to, starting to feel themselves and all this kind of stuff. You know, and she said, she said, I want them to be prepared. I said, well, can you say some more about that? She said, well, you know, boys are going to be boys. And, 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 and I just, you know, if he, if he finds himself in a sexual encounter, I want, him to, I want him to wrap himself up. You know, we know what that means. That means put on a prophylactic. Yeah. And I told him, I said, I said, ma'am, I hear you. I said, but when you say boys will be boys, this is a church conference. You're a follower of Christ. You're a student of his word. I said, let's teach him the word of God. And I can't find in the Bible where it talks about wrapping it up. But I can find in the Bible where it talks about zipping it up. (laughs) Could it be that we teach them how to keep themselves? I'll use my son for an example. He's now married to my wonderful daughter in love and graced us with our youngest granddaughter, Justice. Right? Working with him in his teen years, putting him in accountability groups with other young men. They're National Honor Society students. They're they're letter athletes, good looking young men, put them in that group of accountability, and then you mentor them from afar and sometimes up close as a dad. And you challenge them to challenge each other, right? So so when they're dating young women, let's bring that in a public setting. If you're going to spend time with her, do it at McDonald's you know don't be down in that basement and you know her mother's not there you know what's about to go down right and they challenge one of they call one another hey man i'm i'm getting weak you know and and they'll get in their cars uh and drive over and get him and spend time with him let's go to the arcade or whatever you understand so there are practical and real ways to 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 uh to avoid some of this risky behavior and it doesn't make you a nerd to me it makes you cooler Uh, than ever yeah when when you intentionally keep yourself like that you distance yourself from people that aren't living that way I'm not talking about in a in a judgmental kind of way I'm just saying you're not moving in the direction I'm moving in I need to pull myself close to some people that have the same goals and focus as I do are you understanding what I'm saying and it works so, so he did not, and I'm giving God the glory, but I'm also patting my son, who's 28 years old now, patting him on the back. He never had sex until his marriage bed. That's cool, man. Not That's awesome. 14, 15 young women, mental and emotional scars you have, or maybe some, some uh, uh, uncurable sexually transmitted infection. Are you understanding what I'm saying? This is what young people need to hear. That does not make you cool. It makes you a fool. Yeah. Man, I feel like I need to lift an offering, brother. We <laughs> hey, they need to chew the organ, man. Because <laughs> we preaching up in here, brother.
0: <laughs> oh, that's
1: good. <laughs>